When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to episode 224 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the great Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, chief? Oh, it just goes along. It's very hot out there. It's hot out there all around the country. It's hot out there all around the world. It's hot out there, Leslie. Hot, hot, hot. I was on the uh, picket line this morning covering the sag after stunt performers, and here in Burbank, California, it was about uh, 90-something degrees, and it wasn't even 10 a.m. yet, so... Uh, yeah, but anyway, we're 90 days into the writer's strike and two weeks into the actor's strike, and there is zero update about when both guilds will return to the bargaining table with studios and streamers who comprise the AMPTP. This week, Chris Kaiser, the co-chair of the negotiating committee for the, the Writers Guild and a former TV's top five guest, I should note, two-time top five guest, said in a 17-minute video to WGA members that the studios and streamers are in, quote, what increasingly seems like a mutual suicide pact, end quote, because the historic dual strikes are already threatening the 2023-24 broadcast season as well as the 24-25 movie schedule. So yeah, zero movement, <sighs> but unless you count uh, the, the temperature. To, to which we can only say, oi, um, we're going to yeah. definitely have multiple- Oi with the oi. We're yeah. definitely going to talk more on later segments about sort of the longer and midterm impacts and the short-term impacts, which are not necessarily exactly what you might expect, but basically- it all just goes along as it goes along, and uh, you should definitely listen to our great Chris Kaiser interview from which episode was that, Leslie? Chris Kaiser joined us first, uh, or most recently, I should say, in episode 213 from May 12th, 2023, uh, to discuss the WGA strike. And then he first joined us in episode 192, that's from April 1st, 2022, to discuss his Max series, Julia. So anyway, yes. Um where everyone's just doing the best we can and and we urge people to stay strong and also stay hydrated. <laughs> yeah, sunscreen. Be sure to sunscreen. Number 1. Uh we're leading off with uh not headlines again, but uh with another week that's largely sans deals except for some walking dead renewals at a Comic-Con last week. We're going to continue to shift from headlines to a mini mailbag segment during the strike. So our first question comes from KM, who thinks the Television Academy should scrap the supporting performance categories in favor of an ensemble award so more shows get recognized for their acting. And of course, this is all in the wake of Succession and the White Lotus dominating the, the drama supporting actor and actress categories this year. Dan, what do you think of an ensemble award? I don't think it's a bad idea. I, th I think it might be a bad idea in lieu of the individual awards. Like I, I don't necessarily, well, I know that the Emmys and the TV Academy like to honor as many things as whatever is humanly possible, even if that's not the way the votes go. And so it seems highly unlikely that they're going to eliminate anything that has the potential to basically put an attractive celebrity butt in the seats for the hypothetical award show. So I don't think we're going to see that. I don't think an ensemble uh, category is a bad idea. What concerns me or what would make me wary about it is, for example, just what an awful, awful job the SAG voters have traditionally done with their ensemble categories in the drama and, category, and drama and comedy fields. Uh, I think if you go and look, it, it's, I would go so far as to say, wholly illogical. Like some, it, some years it seemed as if it was a, the SAG voters are voting for basically what is the largest ensemble in the category. And so and and even if they were spectacular ensembles, like there was at least one year that Boardwalk Empire won and you sort of looked at the distinction in Boardwalk Empire had like the longest list of names and that was sort of how you could guess that it was going to win. But also just, I, I don't know that they've ever really understood what the concept of an ensemble was. I, I used to get ticked off in years when, for example, or just the new black wasn't nominated. It was nominated a couple times, but it wasn't always nominated to me. That was a spectacular example of an ensemble. Um, 
Pose never being nominated, I don't believe in that category. That is a ridiculously great ensemble that should have been nominated for ensemble awards if here, what here. we are if what we were talking about is an ensemble. So the fact that it wasn't kind of makes me wonder what it is that anyone is looking at. Now, obviously, would White Lotus and Succession both get nominated? Of course, and they would be completely deserving. They are both great ensembles. But the question of of how it would be different and how it would be distinct and 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 who it would honor also because to some degree an ensemble is a tribute to the actors. To another degree, it's a tribute to the casting directors. And there is a casting category in both drama and comedy, even if it's not necessarily, once again, to my mind, an award that is given out with any particular consistency. I will point out for about the zillionth time my frustration with uh, Reservation Dogs and Angelique Midthunder never being nominated, because once again, if you're looking at what a casting director does, the casting director who who basically went around the country looking for uh, indigenous, around multiple countries, because they went to Canada, looking for indigenous actors who no one had ever seen before and giving them a platform, to me, that's a pretty ridiculous piece of casting and she hasn't been nominated for casting either years. So I think it's an interesting question. It would just be a hard, hard thing to nail down in terms of both what it represented, who it honored, and and whether or not it would take anything away from the, you know, the existing categories. And there are also so many darn categories. So, but, I, you know, to me, it seems like a thing that probably ought to be vaguely considered, at least. <laughs> it has its advantages. Um, Our second question comes from George Brown, who emails that he's confused as to why actors cannot promote projects for which they were paid and which were done when a contract that said they were going to promote projects was valid. Well, it's a strike. So the answer to that is there has to be disruption. The, The goal of any strike is to disrupt the status quo. So these are actors who are striking for the future of their livelihoods and the future of their profession with AI, et cetera. You can go back and listen to our terrific interview with Justine Bateman last week about the dangers of AI. But the idea is, is, you know, actors are going to try trying to promote things that make the studios money at a time when they are on strike against the studios for money and for guardrails so that their profession has a future. So it doesn't really make a ton of sense. Obviously, the things that the Actors Guild has said you can and can't do is very different than what the Writers Guild said at the early uh, stages of their strike. And they amended those rules to include writers being able to actually tweet about their shows. I mean, that's a little bit different. Obviously, this the shows, you know, are, are all some of these are all deeply personal for the people who are who are creatively involved in them. That's not to say that it's not the same for actors, but actors are used in a number of ways by the studios to promote the project. So if you're on strike for money and because you're worried that you're going to be replaced by AI, do you want to tweet about your new project? I mean, I'm sure some people, the answer is yes, but for the most part, the whole point is to create disruption that and show that there are consequences and to create an impact. So that that's why you're seeing this. So, and, and there's been a or lot not of, seeing this, I should say. And there's been a lot of talk about uh, SAG giving waivers. There were also talk, obviously, about the Writers Guild giving waivers. There was the whole discussion that was rather extensively had about the Tonys and how the Tonys didn't get a waiver, but what they got instead was the promise that the Writers Guild wouldn't pick it in exchange for it being an unwritten telecast, etc. And there have been a lot of conversations with about whether or not SAG would be willing to grant waivers to a lot of the fall film festival films, many of which are independent films, many of which are produced internationally, uh, sort of uh, lots of different reasons that people are trying to get carve-outs, basically, to allow actors to promote things. And there seems to be some question and some disagreement as to whether it should be a very flexible line in which lots of people are allowed to do this, or in which, as Leslie says, the point is disruption. And while it is bad if a little independent film that was made with no support whatsoever from the studio system, etc., you know, if it if it gets hurt and doesn't get the publicity and promotion, but disruption is the purpose, and so and consistency is the purpose. If everyone is confused by why there's a different rule for different people, and if everyone is confused why 
Tom Cruise is reportedly or was reportedly trying to get opportunities to do promotion and whatever, you know, that there has to be consistency and we're going to see, because again, the fall film festival season is a very important season for both studios, but also actors and artists. And so we're going to have to see how those things all go down. Yeah, we're going to do a, a quick bonus question because it kind of plays into what we were just talking about here. Uh, but Mark Thomas asks why celebrities and background actors are able to continue to film game shows after he attended a recent uh, temp uh, after he attended a recent taping of one. And the answer is pretty simple: game shows like reality TV shows and news and sports and interview based talk shows and other non scripted shows are not subject to the Writers Guild's minimum basic agreement. So all clear on that front. So a quick reminder, if you have questions you'd like to hear us address on the show, go ahead and drop us an email at TV's top five. That's the numeral five at THR.com. And if you send us your questions and include your mailing address, I'm going to send you a fancy limited edition TV's top five sticker. Limited edition, meaning we only have a handful of them. Not yeah. so much meaning that they're particularly rare or collector's items, though I mean, they I'm happy could. to individually number them, but I don't think anyone really cares about that. <laughs> Though they could be. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, as a collector myself, I'm all for a one of one, but none of these are one of one. Yeah. Anyway, they're nice. TV's top five at THR.com, the numeral five. Number two. Up second, we're just going to talk a little bit about the late Sinead O'Connor, the uh, Irish singer who, of course, became a global sensation on the back of her cover, her passionate, her wonderful, still reduces me to tears cover of Nothing Compares to You. She died this week at the age of 56. Details around her passing have not yet been revealed as of press time, which of course does not stop people on Twitter from speculating as people on Twitter do. Um, let's, let's just start with personal stuff because I know that Jeanette O'Connor was important to you and that you were a fan, Leslie. So so what do you want to say by way of tribute here? I, I mean, I just, I, I struggle to find the words of what she meant to me. And I'm getting, I'm tearing up a little bit here. But the first thing that I think of is when I was a teenager, I obviously, I was a huge Sinead O'Connor fan, um, obviously. And she played Lilith Fair. I've seen her live a bunch of times. And there was, a, you know, one something happened uh, when I was really young, when I was a teenager, and you know I was on this really competitive softball team. I know, spoiler alert, I'm gay. I play softball. I know, insert jokes here, but um, I was I used to play catcher, fast pitch catcher, and I was very close with our pitcher at the time. I played a lot of weekend travel ball and all that stuff, and she had this boyfriend who was just the sweetest guy on the planet. He would drive her everywhere, come to games, come to practices, just hang out with us. He was one of us, and he was killed in a drive-by shooting. And when that happened, she quit the team. We never, I never saw her or talked to her again. And I just remember feeling and experiencing grief for one of the first times in my young life at the time. And, and I'm telling this story now because what really pulled me out of that and helped me really feel my feelings and understand what I was feeling was Sinead O'Connor and, and listening to a lot of her music, especially black boys on mopeds. And it's still a song that that brings me to tears today. And she was just an incredibly true person. She never pretended to be anything that she other than who she was. And for me, that the minute that I can really say that I felt happy being who I am and and comfortable in my own skin was when I got to actually feel that I was able to authentically be myself and live as the person who I am. And to do that under public scrutiny and under the pressures of being a Grammy winning megastar who was rocketed to international stardom and 
just completely unprepared for all of the things and the pressures that that brought. And then being able to be true to who you are while in the middle of all of that stuff and being outspoken. I mean, when she ripped that photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, I mean, she was effectively the first person to be canceled, right? I mean, I don't want to say the first, but one of the one of the first to be canceled by mainstream society. And, you know, there was a great documentary about her called Nothing Compares, fittingly, that aired on Showtime last year. It's a fantastic watch if you haven't seen it, but it really gets to the point that she was right. Everything that she said, everything that she did, she was right. And she paid the price. You know, look, she'd been open about her struggles with depression and suicide and obviously lost her youngest son to suicide. And she led a very, very hard life. And it's hard. And I, I don't know how to describe it. I'm going to use the wrong words, but it's, it's, on one hand, it's nice to see that that she gets some recognition now for for the life that she led and the incredible talent that she was. But it kind of saddens me because I wonder if she really got to experience that when she was with us. You know what I'm saying, Dan? I, I think it's the documentary, which is available to watch. I believe Showtime on Demand. It's on Paramount Plus at several places. I, I watched it yesterday. It's a really good documentary. It's uh, there. There have been a lot in the past year or two of of me of airing on television documentaries sort of fueled by nostalgia this one fuel felt much more fueled by emotion than fueled by nostalgia i thought i mean the gogo's doc was really really good the alana stock was was very good but nothing hit like the way that the sinead doc and and so like i think the documentary i think it made its point and i think the people who watched it felt that it did the job of of sort of making it clear that she was to some degree a, a Cassandra figure that people were not prepared to to listen to her they were not prepared to take her seriously uh for reasons that are you know many of them very very much grounded in in sexism and and in institutional sexism in her industry in particular but also grounded in you know generations of sexism coming out of Ireland specifically tied to the Catholic Church. And so, yeah, I, I, I feel like the documentary probably must have, you know, we don't, we don't know because she wasn't a direct participant in the documentary. It's not that kind of a documentary where she was giving extensive interviews. Though, of course, you mentioned the Alanis Morissette documentary in which she was very involved. Alanis she was very involved and then distanced herself from the documentary when it came out. So you never know. But but yeah, the, the the documentary makes its points so very clearly about both the reasons she felt she had to express herself in the way she did, not just in that moment, but in general, you know, sort of there was also the segment about the bad press and, and backlash that she got for not wanting uh, the national anthem before performed before her performances, this in the middle of the first Gulf War. So, you know, she... She was fairly consistent. And and looking back, I, you know, I don't remember certainly feeling after she did that, oh, she was right, you know, rah, rah, rah. I definitely didn't make fun of her and think she was wrong, but I, but it's much clearer now taking the step back that what she did was a thing of tremendous courage. And you and you pause watching the documentary and go, what would happen if someone did something similar today? Would it be a different thing? Would society treat her differently would Saturday Night Live, which effectively absolutely distanced itself from her. You know, no no courage in standing behind an artist from Saturday Night Live and Lorne Michaels on that because Lorne Michaels is courageous, but in a very corporate form of courageous way. Um, and, and the answer, of course, is that no, it wouldn't be different. It would be, it would probably be worse because of how polarized we are. And you know that there would be the one subset of the audience that would absolutely, that, that would never under any circumstances ever go to see a Sinead O'Connor concert or buy a Sinead O'Connor album that would make a really, really big show of boycotting someone who they didn't care about anyway. But no, I, the, the, the documentary in particular does such a good job of both emphasizing how genuine and personal her reasons for doing the things that she did outside of music were, but also just to remind you of, of how remarkable her, her voice was and how, 
how much emotion was in everything and the way that she connected to songs, whether it was something like Nothing Compares to You, which of course was a was a Prince cover and there was lots of contentiousness about the Prince about Prince and then later the Prince estate, how they felt about the song. Specifically, the documentary can't use the song because the Prince estate wouldn't clear it for the documentary. And you know, what are you gonna say? Uh but but yeah, the 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 uniqueness of her voice and the uniqueness of the messages she wanted to get across. Yeah, I think I think it's important that the people who stood by her over the years and that the people who really were her fans knew knew and knew at the time and knew subsequently how important her and her voice were. And so it sounds as if you did, and it sounds as if you did not forget those things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I saw her probably about 15 years ago at the Orpheum here in, in uh, Los Angeles. And I think the venue was maybe a third full. She blew the roof off the place. Like that, the venue, I mean, it's an iconic venue could not contain her. You know what I mean? It was just one of the most, beautiful performances that I've seen, just incredibly talented. And I'm just, you know, I've been listening to a lot, obviously, uh, you know, for the last uh, 24 hours here. And um, her cover of Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered is just so tender. And then you go and, and, and you shift to, you know, something like The Emperor's New Clothes or Nothing Compares. And um, I, I her when she covered All Apologies, it's just, it's so good. And there's, she could just do almost any genre. Like, I, I yeah, it's just it's just a real loss. Number three. Up third and changing the subject dramatically, Hollywood's first dual strike since 1960 is having an unexpected side effect. Studios and streamers are now suddenly flush with cash. Joining us this week to discuss the story is THR media and business writer and, of course, friend of the five, Alex Weprin. Thanks again for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. So I've mentioned on, on the show for a bit now since the strike started that there would possibly be a financial benefit for the studios and streamers uh, during the strike so that they could possibly get their books right after the hits that that affected them and, and their bottom lines during COVID. The Netflix earnings seem to really indicate that that's actually now happening. And you wrote a whole story about uh, about this cash surplus that that's come as an unintended event of the strike. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of the year, Netflix told investors they expected to have $3 billion in what they call free cash flow. It's basically the cash generated from you know their operations. And in the last quarter, they upped it to over $5 billion. So that's an extra $2 billion from the beginning of the year. And they attributed that in part to the strikes. And uh, there was a Morgan Stanley analyst report that said that if the strikes go on longer, they expect that number to get even higher. So yeah, I mean, we are beginning to see the, the results here that there is going to be excess cash at these studios and the streamers because, you know, this money that they'd normally be spending funding TV shows and movies is just kind of sitting there in their bank accounts. Yeah, no one's paying overall deals. No one's paying for lunches every day for writers' rooms. Uh, no one's buying new projects. No one's going straight to series. No one's making development deals or first look deals or actor deals or anything. It's just everything has stopped. So what are they going to do with this money? Yeah, I mean, it's actually instructive to look back to what happened during COVID. It's not a perfect comparison. But you know, on the one hand, I think all these companies recognize that once the strikes are over, they're going to want productions to ramp up quickly. So I do think a lot of that is going to be held for, you know, funding productions once the strikes are over. And they're going to need a lot of cash and quick to make that happen. So I do think that's going to be a big chunk of it. That being said, I do think that you're going to begin to see, you know, some companies investing in far more foreign productions or unscripted shows, things that they can produce uh, because they're going to want to make sure they have enough, you know, programming to to get them through you know, as long as possible into next year. And Netflix in their quarterly earnings report, they announced an expansion of their stock buyback program um, because of all the excess cash they had. And Disney has previously said they want to bring back their dividend by the end of the year. So there's going to be some of the money is going to be returned to shareholders. Um, you know, there are other possibilities, you know, like M&A, but, but really I, I expect most of it will be used on programming, either held for when the strike is over or on foreign productions or reality shows. And then some of it's going to be done on stock buybacks and, and dividends. So here, here's a, a stupid question here. If they're so flush with cash all of a sudden because they're not having to pay writers, 
and actors, why don't they pay writers and actors and settle the strike? You know, that's a good question. You'd have to talk to the AMPTP, yeah. you know, about what's I had what to ask. Is. Um, you know, I, I will say, I want to make it crystal clear, like the longer the strike goes on, the worse it will be for everyone, including the streamers and studios, right? Ultimately, they all need original programming to be successful and compete. So, you know, I, I, every single studio head is saying they they want to, you know, they'll say they want to cut a fair deal, whatever that means. And, but they all, I think, are correct when they say that they want to get these shows and movies back in production because they do need them. It's just that there's a delay. Right now, they still have new programming that's that's beginning to roll out, but they're not funding anything. Uh, next year, all of a sudden, there's not going to be any new programming to come out. And that's when they're going to feel the pinch of, of the strikes. So there's kind of a delay. You know, I, I, online, some uh, someone on, on Twitter was like, you know, it's, it's like the airlines, you know, if they stop flying, they'll save a lot of money. That it's not a perfect comparison because you know if the airlines stop flying, their revenue drops to zero too. Uh, in the case of the studios, you know Netflix is actually making more money than ever this quarter. It's just that their 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 spending has gone down. So there's there's a gap between uh, the money that they're bringing in and the money they're spending. Is there any sort of timetable at which one would anticipate that being a media company not making media would cease to be a good business plan like wh- at what point will there actually be a pinch that these companies will feel i think we're going to find out because every company has been you know pulling back on on spend they've been you know laying off employees you know espn last month you know uh, let go of a you know a couple dozen pretty high profile on our personalities so i think we're going to begin to see I think they want to they test the boundaries. You know, I think everyone understands that you have to release new programming, but how much do you have to really? What can you get away with without losing any subscribers? Um, and I think a bunch of companies are, are very intrigued to explore that. They don't want to like collapse, but I think, you know, I think they know that they can cut back a little bit while still growing. Uh, and I think they're going to kind of play use the strike to kind of play around those boundaries. So many people who I follow, writers and and actors who I follow on Twitter, are constantly fielding questions from from fans, and and the fans are always asking, "What are we supposed to do? Should we be canceling our subscriptions and all of that?" And and for the most part, the people I follow have followed the line of, "No, that's not the thing you should be doing." But listening to you, I kind of wonder if that is the thing that people should be doing. If it, it like if they're not feeling any pain at this point, yeah. What are what is anyone supposed to do? It is just so strangely counterintuitive that anyone would be sitting here going, "Well, we are not making media at this point, and we're getting rich off it." Yeah, it's a double edged sword, right? You know, because on the one hand, the, none of the guilds have called for you know a boycott of the streaming services yet. Um, and I think part of the concern is, you know, there are still residuals, like, you know, writers and actors are still getting paid based on some of the content that's on those services. Yeah. And a lot um, of them are posting the checks for, you know, as Mandy Moore told me, 89 cents for this is yeah, us residual from streaming. Yeah. I mean, there are, but there are still some, you know, I'm sure there are people that are making you know, more than that. Even though I guess at a, at a, at a pretty broad level, there's, you know, uh, there's some, in, there's an inequity there. Uh, but at the same time, I, I do think there is concern that um, people might not come back. If you call for a boycott, they, people may just find you know, TikTok more appealing or you know, YouTube. And, and so you know, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, and, and there's also the risk that they call for a boycott and no one boycotts. And like the numbers keep going up. And in that case, that actually might work against the guilds and kind of undercut their, their influence. You don't really know what's going to happen. And it's hard to tell, um, you know, it's hard to tell what would happen. So, you know, it, it's a big risk. I do think that the guilds want to kind of keep it in their back pocket, you know, just in case. Um, but there's risk on both sides um, if they were to, to pull that trigger. Yeah. So we've we've heard from a lot of these, you know, the company CEOs about, you know, oh, we want to get back to the table. Oh, we want to settle this and get back to making content and all that stuff. What does Wall Street think of, of the strikes? Like how have, have some of these analysts weighed in about, uh, you know, are they taking sides? Are they saying, hey, idiots at Netflix and, and all the, the AMPTP companies, seriously, what are you doing? Like, well, where are they on this? 
you know, it's Wall Street, so they're crunching numbers. Um, you know, the, the, so, you know, they are aware of the excess cash that's being generated and they are kind of asking, you know, hey, what are you going to do with it? You know, um, at the same time, they are trying to figure out and game out just how expensive it's going to be and how it'll impact the bottom line. The big one is that aside from Netflix, none of the streaming services turn a profit right now. Eventually they will. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of the current state of play. And, you know, the, the fear from Wall Street is that, you know, if, if there's a, a deal that is really favorable for the actors or writers, that it'll just kind of delay profitability on streaming uh, farther down the line. Uh, but, you know, it, it's Wall Street. They're focused on the numbers, on, on you know, uh, that's, that's kind of where their head is. Uh, so th- that shouldn't be too surprising. Strange, strange times. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, explaining stuff that seems really, really screwy. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Alex. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Number four. Up next, this continues one of our most frequent uh, topics of conversation lately, which involve what people actually have to air and when it's actually going to air. We talked... Uh, last week, when we addressed the rebooted fall schedule for NBC, which pulled back one scripted original from its fall schedule. But the big question that executives across the TV community are pondering is basically, when should they release the things that they have in the can? And how long is the strike going to last? And how should they be responding to that? So you and our colleague, Lacey, Lacey Rose, another friend of the five, uh, wrote a really long story about it. Where do things stand right now in terms of how people are adjusting their schedules? Well, right now, the thing that's worth noting is anything that that has already had a media spend, think ads, interviews already conducted or key art pushed out and most of this stuff is not going to impact programs that have already had their premiere dates announced. The conversations that that Lacey and I have had with with sources across the the, the, the TV spectrum is the stuff that is loosely dated on the internal schedules. So things that that were maybe earmarked for the fall are now possibly going to be moved to the first quarter of 2024. So it's basically the conversation of, do we stream it now or do we save it? Because it's it's twofold. You know, you just heard Alex Weprin talk about how much content these companies are going to have before they really feel the need to have new originals back to maintain their subscribers and their bottom line. And now the conversation is, is it worth airing these these shows in the fourth quarter or holding them out? Because A, you don't know how long the strikes are going to last. And B, you can't promote them with the stars. So think of a, a show with a, a big star at, at, at the center, right? Like one good example is Feud, the Ryan Murphy a- anthology uh, this season called Capote's Women, that the cast includes Naomi Watts, Demi Moore, Diane Lane, Callista Flockhart, Chloe Sevigny, and Molly Ringwald. And then you've got Fargo with John Hamm. Those are great examples. Do you release those shows without press from those folks? That's a great question. And more so, do you release them not knowing when this is going to end and what the rest of your content pipeline includes. So there are obviously a handful of shows that have completed production that have not been dated, meaning they don't have a premiere date yet. So those include Bad Monkey, the Bill Lawrence comedy for Apple starring Vince Vaughn, uh, Palm Royale, which is the Kristen Wiig, Laura Dern show for Apple. Showtime's got The Curse, which stars Emma Stone, uh, and then Fellow Travelers with with Matt Bomer. Paramount Plus has the Frasier revival, and then AMC has the new Orphan Black Echoes with Kristen Ritter. So these are all shows that are, among others, that I ha- am not mentioning here, that have completed production. So should they should they stream it or should they save it? So and, and again, it's just a question of how 
long is this going to go? And look, I said at the top of the show, we're in, you know, approaching 90 something days of the writer's strike. There is no schedule for when both sides will will return to the negotiating table. They remain far apart on major issues, including residuals and artificial intelligence. This is why this is the topic that this is why that this is one of the things that that is being discussed in executive suites across town. And it's not just TV, it's film too. We've already seen a couple of, of things move off their release date for a movie. So that's where we are. This is again, you know, the longer things go, this is what we saw during COVID where we saw premiere dates pushed in the beginning parts of the pandemic because what shows weren't able to finish production or they didn't know how long this was going to last and they wanted to have something in the can for later down the line. Obviously, you know, broadcast we've talked about on on the show many times before is going to be the first affected. And we saw that happen, right? Going back to your intro, Dan, you said NBC pulled back one of its its new original shows, which is a John Cryer comedy. That was originally earmarked for fall. That's completed. But the, their plan was to pair it with new episodes of Night Court because you know, on broadcast anyway, lead-ins still matter. But Night Court, which was one of the few shows that continued production after wrapping season one, didn't complete enough episodes. So they pulled the entire comedy block for mid-season, including the John Cryer show that's already in the can. So part of that is, okay, well, we believe in this show. It's got a huge star in John Cryer, uh, obviously a big favorite on, on broadcast from his time on Two and a Half Men. So do you air that with no lead-in, or does it work for you to save it? Because you're airing all these other original shows, the ones like Found, which we've talked about. You heard Susan Rovner uh, in episode 200 talk about her creative belief in, in the show. Obviously, she's no longer with NBC Universal, but that got pushed from mid-season to fall so that NBC is going to be one of the very few networks that actually has brand new, previously unaired, scripted originals in the fall when not many other people do. Smart strategy, but now it's like, well, we've got the John Cryer show for who knows when. And that's, you know, we're going to say that for later. We get, we got a bottle of water down the road for when we run out, you know, this is a bad analogy, so I'm just going to drop it. But like, you <laughs> see the point here, Dan, and stop me from rambling. Please. <laughs> I was, I was just working on the bottle of water and I wasn't sure if there was somewhere no. specifically you were going bottle no, of I water wasn't. based. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still de- dehydrated from being out this morning. <laughs> oh, that was your way of saying that you were thirsty. Okay. Yeah. I, but, stop me from talking, Dan. No, but it's, it is still, I think the first point you made is obviously an important point that like at the beginning of that, where you're like, okay, if people announced a premiere date, if they began their promotional spend, if they conducted all of their interviews and lots and lots of both movies and television shows fit in their junkets in the last yeah. seconds before yeah, or- the stuff. And so that was, yeah, like they, they did interviews or junkets that, that were embargoed until closer to premiere date. I think Freeform did that for the animated show Praise PD with Annie Murphy doing rounds of interviews, for example. But still, you know, we're going to, we're going to get to critics corner in a couple seconds. This week is insane. This week is out of control. This week is the busiest week, definitely since the end of May, where there was at least the justification that it was a pre Emmy thing. There are so many shows premiering this week and they're going to get lost. And there are like two or three different shows that I can look at coming this week that I know are delicate shows that need more attention than they're able to get, both in terms of having people out there to promote them. So there's nothing you can do about that at this point is is if a show is premiering this week and you didn't get the actors out, you're not going to suddenly be able to do it. And that's how it goes. Um but even in terms of just having real estate to themselves, um, there are two or three shows this week that are absolutely just going to get lost because there's just no way for them to find a place. And then you look at the schedule for mid-August, late August, looking ahead to September, and there are weeks that have absolutely nothing. And just to name a couple of them, a show like This Fool on Hulu which is going to struggle to find anyone to talk about it. And not just because Hulu has a number of shows premiering this week, and that's not even getting into the various FX on Hulu shows that are premiering last week, next week, etc. Hulu has a ton of original programming that's all in a big, big pile right now. And there's just no way a show like This Fool is going to get traction, unfortunately, when 
everyone on Hulu is is flocking to Futurama or is flocking to watch episodes of Justified that were on FX, but more people are going to watch it on Hulu. Uh, ditto with episodes of What We Do in the Shadows, etc. Just there's too much. And something like uh, Dark Winds on AMC, and I'm going to talk more about all of these in just a few minutes. There's just, I don't understand how we ended up with the bottleneck that we have right now knowing that it's going to be an entirely empty bottle, bottle of water down the road, something about bottles of water. I don't know. Maybe I'm thirsty (laughs) now too. Uh, But to me, I don't understand how you end up with a week like this, given that everybody knew there was the possibility that we could be in the middle of an unprecedented dual strike and that they were going to need some of this programming for later. I don't know how some of these shows weren't held back for weeks that had nothing when they might be the only show in town. There are shows this week that ideally I would have given full written reviews to on THR that are instead just going to get mentioned in my newsletter and on the podcast and that I watched episodes of to make sure I could do them justice, but I couldn't do the extra level of justice to write full reviews because I just didn't have time. And it's, and that makes me sad because I want to be a a celebrator of some of these shows because some of these shows I think need the celebration. Yeah. And then that's the other piece of the story is that shows that are largely driven by top talent, in some cases, the stars themselves are making appeals to the networks and streamers to pull the show, delay it. I want to support the show. I mean, this could be the difference between a renewal and a cancellation. So and, and again, it's going to it's going to be up to to the streamers and studios to see what they do. But uh, here, here's a spoiler alert. Uh, the, the shows with big stars at the at the center more likely to get delayed. So again, we'll we'll monitor, but it's going to be hard to tell because again, you're you're working off of internal premiere dates that haven't been shared publicly, and if if they don't date a show for some time, but it'll be interesting to see if Paramount, for example, dates the Frasier revival, or if AMC sets a premiere date for Orphan Black and when those dates actually are, or if they'll be sometime well into 2024. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Dan, you said it, very full week this week. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Twisted Metal, How to Become a Cult Leader, Dark Winds Season 2, This Fool Season 2, and How To with John Wilson Season 3. Dan, what you got? And by the way, I'm just going to mute myself because as everyone who listens to the show knows, not a critic. Yeah, this this is... This this week is just ridiculous, and there are shows that I just couldn't get anywhere near watching, and that includes the season two premiere of Stars' Heels, a show that I, I thought was pretty decent. I did not finish the first season, though, and I just couldn't get to the second season. Uh, includes season two of Good Omens on Amazon. Didn't get anywhere near that. So just lots and lots of stuff. Your list of new shows didn't mention the new season of Harley Quinn, uh, which is a show that we that we all love around here at this podcast. And I guess with a show like Harley Quinn, it's almost easy where I can go. It it feels a lot like Harley Quinn. So that that one's like the easiest review in this entire thing is um, is I've watched five episodes of the new season of Harley Quinn and. There are interesting new dynamics this season because, of course, Hurley is working with the Bat Fam, whereas Ivy is working with the Legion of whatever they are. And uh, and yeah, so that that kind of upends their relationship a little bit. But the the basic truth is that Harley Quinn is a lot like Harley Quinn, and that's what it is. And that's an easy review to write. But but just too many things this week. And, and so I'm going to try to get to them. And and this is just going to end up being a, a huge monologue because again, there's too much darn TV. And, and so I can kind of, I guess, dispense with a couple things, how to become a cult leader on Netflix, which is kind of the successor to how to become a tyrant, which is a tongue in cheek format documentary, but with animation and with uh, funny narration by Peter Dinklage basically treating cult leaders and in the previous case tyrants so the previous season was folks like hitler this season is folks like charles manson and the question of whether you find it to be in good taste to be finding humor in anything relating to these people well that's just going to be the eye of the beholder if the answer to that question is no you definitely don't want to watch this anyway it becomes a kind of dale carnegie 
uh, here are the steps and tactics to to become a cult leader, ha ha ha, while also telling you how cult leaders are awful, but at the same time, really, really, really uh, downplaying the awful things they did. So it's, you know, like the the most sanitized imaginable version of the Manson family murders or uh, the the flavor aid suicide slash homicides in Guyana with Jim Jones, et cetera. So the part of the problem with the show though, is that at this point I've, I've seen like eight part documentary series is on half of these cults that are focused on in this season. They do heaven's gate. They do Charles Manson. They do Jim Jones, et cetera. I just watched a movie about the Om Shirikyo cult uh, in, in Japan that was behind the Tokyo subway bombing. So, they do them now in 30 minute episodes, which means you're getting just a really superficial perspective on all that. Anyway, so that was uh, how to become a cult leader on on Netflix. Let's let's get into some of the actual interesting slash meaningful stuff. Uh, Twisted Metal has already premiered on Peacock. It is, of course, based on a game that goes all the way back to the mid 90s, uh, which it just really makes me feel old because I've never played the game regularly personally, but I definitely remember when it was a popular thing. It it feels to me like it's less now, but the brand obviously has a lot of appeal. And the, the premise of the game is kind of a demolition derby kind of thing. All of these souped up cars in an arena trying to blow each other to bits. And the TV show sets up the Twisted Metal Tournament basically for season two. So it's an entire 10 episode season building up to basically the video game. Uh, the The best thing, and this is going to sound like an insult, but I swear I don't mean it to. The best thing about Twisted Metal is that episodes are a half hour. So it's a uh, 10 episode season of half hour episodes, which just means that it moves fast. It, could it also just have been a movie? Absolutely. But but the advantage is that the creators take some narrative structuring. The premise is basically that Anthony Mackie plays a quote-unquote milkman in a post-apocalyptic society. He's not literally a milkman. He goes from city to city. The cities are all barricaded and walled up, making deliveries. But he only is allowed to live in the outside. The people inside the cities live comfortable, civilized lives. The people outside are basically all criminals and outlaws, and it's madness. Uh, he runs into a a scavenger played by Stephanie Beatrice from uh, um, whatchamacallit, that would be Brooklyn Nine-Nine that I'm trying to get to there, getting to use her own voice, which is fun to hear. So, uh, And they form an unlikely alliance against a bunch of the various sadistic people on the road. That includes a gigantic manic clown uh, played physically by Samoa Joe, a wrestler and voiced by Will Arnett. Uh, there's also a aviator glasses wearing law enforcement figure played by Thomas Hayden Church. The the show is produced by a couple of the people behind Deadpool and Zombieland, and it has some of the kind of similar glibness that those movies have. In both cases, I found those movies to be uh, amusing and then increasingly less so. And the first couple episodes here are a lot of carnage and driving, but they really don't have a huge budget. I, I don't know what the actual budget was. It doesn't look like it was very large, but it also doesn't look like they had a kind of Roger Corman style of ingenuity. So it just seems limited. And, and I was getting tired of it, but the show gets better when it starts actually paying attention to the characters. There are a couple of episodes that are very character focused uh, and it, it gets better. And Stephanie Beatrice is really just, She's great. Anthony Mackie is fun and he's having fun and that's all good. Uh, around episode four, though, is when Twisted Metal started being bearable to me. And then it and then it got better. My, my review said that the show was quite decent and lots of people will be comparing it to uh, to The Last of Us because obviously video game adaptation, post-apocalyptic, uh touring the country as a duo, et cetera. There are similarities. It is not an imagined similarity. This is not a show on that level, but it's a show that's fun and decent. And so people will want to, people who care will want to watch it. People who don't care probably won't. And that's actually completely fine. This is not where I'm going to tell you it's so good that even if you're not a fan of the games and you don't care about video game adaptations and whatever, yeah, I'm not going to tell you to seek it out. But if it sounds amusing, Maybe it's, you know, the killer clowns, 
driving stunts, lots of people's limbs get chopped off. Sometimes it's funny. Mostly it's not, but sometimes it is. So uh, let's get to some of the returning shows because I feel like a lot of that is what's coming this week. Um, I'm going to do hopefully a full review for next week. So let's just say that really and truly the best thing premiering in this window before our next podcast episode is season three of Reservation Dogs. I've seen three episodes of the new season. Uh, It is really excellent. And I am going to uh, be very, very sad when that show goes away. Speaking of shows that I'm going to be sad when they go away. This season of How To with John Wilson is the third and final season. It premieres on Friday, and I'm going to be really, really bummed when that show goes away, because part of the point of that show was unexpected resourcefulness. And for people who haven't watched, I've only been raving about the show for, you know, two previous seasons. What can what can I do to make you watch it? He's kind of a documentary filmmaker, but also a, a comedian, but also really just a wry observer of New York City. And the fun of each episode is it starts with a simple lesson of, you know, he's going to tell you how to find a public restroom, for example, which is the the first episode of the new season. And then you follow and see where he goes, who he talks to, what he showcases. And and that's kind of where the show's entertainment is from the six episode season. This is one where I watched all of the episodes. A lot of this week I was kind of sampling stuff. I did want to get through all of how to with John Wilson. Uh, The first episode, which is the public restroom episode was actually my least favorite of the group. It, It gets better and better. And there are just all of these wholly unexpected detours that I, I just don't want to spoil there are there's at least one episode that feels like the most Nathan Fieldery thing that the show has ever done. Nathan Fielder is, of course, an executive producer on the show. And yeah, it's it's just a special show. It's a show that really starts off silly, starts off immature. You you think I you know, this is this is goofy and silly. How does it sustain? And it, it finds emotional undercurrents. And a couple of these episodes just really leveled me. I was, I was so surprised by how dark and deep they got in some cases. It's, it's just a great show. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been recommending it for a while. So if you haven't watched it, I don't know what else I can do. Just watch how to with John Wilson for the love of Pete. Um, like I said, I didn't get to all the episodes of a lot of other things with this fool, uh, which we had Chris Estrada on the podcast, Leslie, when did we have Chris Estrada on the podcast? That would be episode 182 from August 19th, 2022. That was one of my favorite episodes because just of how so many parts of it were completely unexpected. And and Chris at that point had done very few interviews for the show and and was just completely off the cuff and honest. And it was just a, a nice thing to talk to him. And we were glad to have him. Uh, season two, you can tell in certain cases that the show is finding at least an audience in Hollywood. There are a couple of, of recognizable cameos in a couple episodes, not like, you know, not like Brad Pitt popping up on Dave or anything, but the, the first season was not that kind of show. Uh, but it, it does nice work following up on where the show cratered the two main characters played by Chris Estrada and played by Frankie Quinones. Uh, they were living in a garage next door. So they'd at least gotten out of his uh, grandmother's house, but they were suddenly unemployed because Hugs Not Thugs, the uh, bakery and kind of halfway house service that they were part of, it went out of business. And so the season is about getting them back on their feet. More than anything, though, the season is about uh, Julio, Chris Estrada's character, dealing with with the very real emotional issues he has. And that's probably my favorite thing about the show is is just what a what a putz this character is so very frequently he he makes bad decisions he alienates everyone around him he goes down dark spirals and it's still funny in the process of doing it and the new episode, the new season sets up what their new business is going to be and again it sets up many circumstances in which Julio is able to screw things up and yeah i thought it was a, a really solid return and and this just unfortunately is is as i said in the last segment it's a show that is going to have a hard time finding traction and so here i am telling you that this fool is a is a really good show it's uh, you know unfortunately it's just not a show that i'm ever going to talk about as much or with as much adulation as how to with john wilson cuz i you know how to with john wilson is one of my 10 favorite shows and 
this fool might be one of my 25 favorite shows. So, you know, but there's 600 shows on TV last year. So being one of my 25 or 30 favorite shows, that's, that's pretty good stuff. So I, I like people to watch this fool because it's good. Um, speaking of shows that I would like people to watch and that I really, really don't want to get lost, uh, Dark Winds on AMC. The first season, I praised a lot of aspects about it, particularly Zon McLaren's performance. Um, and, and I said that basically the first season to me felt kind of truncated and choppy. It felt like it had to do multiple things where it had to tell a season long arc, but really it was trying to introduce you to the Lee Porn and Chi characters uh, who are the focus of the, the Tony Hillerman novel series. And I was looking forward to seeing what season two did. And the answer is season two does a lot of the things I really wanted it to do. It, it becomes a much clearer, much more driven show. The main storyline um, is it's, it's gripping at times. It I sort of fizzles a tiny bit in the second half of the season, unfortunately, uh, but it, it does a lot of, great things, especially in the first half. And I can't say enough how good Zon McLaren is. And I've said this about his performance on Reservation Dogs. I thought he should have won an Emmy for his season of Fargo. This is such a good performance that he's giving here. It it is it's it's a star performance. It really is. It is the camera just sits on his face for these long <laughs> and I know that sounds bad. I love it when I say things that just coming out of my mouth, I, I realized what I said. Anyway, the camera holds on his face. That's what I wanted to say. Holds on his face. And it's just transfixed by how little he seems to be doing, but how much thought comes through at every moment. It's a performance that sometimes is very still, but it's entirely deceptive in its stillness there's wry humor there's deep emotional pain because his character is still dealing with the death of his son and and this season's mystery brings that to the surface it's it's a great performance and a lot of the other supporting performances are rising to similar levels this season i still feel like the show hasn't done as well with uh, jim chi played by uh uh, kiowa gordon but I think the show does great with Jessica Madden as one of the Navajo tribal policemen. I think she is just wonderful. Elva Guerra, who's also on Reservation Dogs, I think she's giving a wonderful supporting performance. There are really good new turns from a couple of the season-long guest stars that I think are quite excellent. It's it's a beautifully shot season. I think it's it's notable because it's a season set in winter, so it's winter against the southwestern desert backdrop and and that's really evocative you know seeing the the john ford western vistas dusted in snow and seeing people wandering through the desert and worrying about freezing to death it adds a different emotional level to it and i i it's just a good season of tv this one and i and i think that the first season was a lot of potential and i think the second season is a lot of potential realized and so uh yeah like i would not know what to single out as the things that i would tell people that they want to watch this week because there's so much good stuff reservation dogs returns next week it's fantastic how to with john wilson on hbo season three third and final season fantastic uh this fool just a really good gem and once you get into its sense of humor you you want to you want to support the show Dark uh, Dark Winds takes a step forward in the second season. I, I thought a really good step forward. And then there are the other various things. Harley Quinn is what it is. It's still one of my favorite uh, kind of joyful, raucous, disreputable shows. Uh, really enjoy it. Twisted Metal, liked it more than I did. Oh, dear God, there's too much TV. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to weeks where there's like one show. So I don't know. Maybe save a few things. Except my worry is that if you save shows like This Fool and uh, Dark Winds, then Hulu and AMC are going to think that you're not watching them and, and they might get canceled. So maybe watch those shows first because they might need you more than some of these other shows. Well, for more of Dan's recommendations, wait, there's more? 
Be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Uh, come say hi to us on Twitter, MySpace, Friendster, wherever you happen to be. She's consistently at Snoodit with two O's. I'm consistently at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Uh, as you've noticed, we've replaced headlines, at least short term, with mini mailbags each week. And if you have questions for our mini mailbags, email us again at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.